When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702, The Naked Scientist. It's now uh, 24 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. One of my favorite segments in the week is our time with Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, where you get to ask him all sorts of science-related questions. My WhatsApp line is already filling up. Good afternoon, Chris. Hi, Azza. How are you? I'm good. Happy to be back at work. I've been away last week, so it's great to be back in the seat and talking to you. How was your holiday? Yeah, it was good. You know, I went boating. I decided I needed to get away, get back into nature. And uh, so I hired a boat and I went on the Norfolk Broads in the southeast of England is the county Norfolk. And they have all these ancient peak cuttings where uh, about a thousand years ago, people began to live in this area and there were some rivers running through this area, but lots of marshland, so lots of peat. And the ancient inhabitants there cut away the peat because it's high in carbon, Mm -hmm. it made great fuel, they would heat their houses, do their cooking over it. But these enormous peat cuttings eventually flooded out, turned into big lakes. And now you've got this amazing connected network of of big sort of lakes and and waterways. And uh, you can hire a boat and you can drift around it at your leisure. And uh, I think it's about 120 miles, 200 kilometres worth of um, waterways to explore. And the fishing is good, it's beautiful, it's quiet, and you can sink a few beers uh, in good company. Company. And social distancing, yeah. no problem, because you're on, you're on a boat with, with your nearest and dearest. No, it's great. We had a good time. Yes, I think with tourism uh, in our country struggling, lots of people just feel like, come on, just open up the borders. Let us be able, you know, the interprovincial borders. Let us travel so we can be out there in the bush. What safer place is there, you know, than uh, um, somewhere uh, secluded and not being cramped up in the city as we are? So, yes, social distancing definitely at its best. So that's one of the big conversations that's happening here around um, our struggling dying tourism sector yeah. because of the regulations well, I think you're right. we could all um, do with the get with the getaway yeah well being out and about you're quite right that being out in in the bush is a really good place to be because if you're just with the people who you would bubble up with as your social bubble the people you live with the risk out there in the fresh air bit of sunshine very very low if you are mm. on the other hand crammed up indoors or in an office the risk is going to be higher i think the issue, though, and we've seen this time and time again with outbreaks, pandemics, epidemics, when you've got people moving around, it does facilitate spread because people take their germs where they go. And it's not just the where you go to, it's the getting there as well. And if you end up in an unsafe, risky situation on public transport to get somewhere, that is also a risk. So what we do know really works to curtail the spread of infectious diseases is saying to people, you've got to stay in one place and you've got to stay out of reach of of other people who are not your immediate household contacts, which is what most countries are resorting to at the moment. But you're quite right. And um, and actually our own transport secretary, Grant Shapps, our government minister for for transport, is is going to be marooned in quarantine when he comes back from his holidays because he's gone to Spain and the rules have just changed. They've just announced that anyone who's gone to Spain on holiday now coming mm. back to the UK, for example, is going to be placed in quarantine for two weeks. So, so that means our government ministers are not above the law either. So it's hard times yes. for many people. 
Okay. Uh, thanks for that update on your side. We've got questions for you, Chris. Let's go to Tebucho uh, in Randburg. Hi, Abba. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Um, I have a sort of silly question, but uh, I'm wondering how come when I buy vegetables at the grocery store, they and then, and then I put them in my refrigerator, they don't last as long as they would in the refrigerators at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, um, this, this is a very, very relevant point that you've made here. And actually, the grocery stores have this down to a fine art because they move enormous volumes of these things and they also know how to keep them fresh. One little trick, a good example, let's use potatoes as an example. Most people are frustrated because they buy these beautiful potatoes in the shop in a nice plastic bag and they think, well, I'll buy that big bag I'll take it home and that will last me for a while. Within days of getting the spuds home, they're already sprouting. And people think, well, why weren't they doing that in the shop? And the answer is that the people who store them know how to stop them doing that. And the way they do it is they keep the potatoes at a, a low but not really low temperature and they increase the percentage in the air that's circulating around the potatoes of ethylene. And the gas ethylene also known as ethene, suppresses the sprouting of the potatoes. Some fruits are matured with ethylene. So what you can do is if you want your fruits to ripen to order so that the day they're going to be delivered to the shops, they do look at their best, you can also apply ethylene and this will encourage them to ripen. So the big distributors, shops, etc., know how to do this. They know how to do it really well so that when the stuff ends up on their shelves, it looks its best and it's in peak condition with the best mm-hmm. shelf life, but the best saleability. And then when you buy it, it's a bit like driving out of the showroom with a brand new car. It's downhill all the way after that because it's never <laughs> going to be as good as the minute you drove it out of the showroom. And and that's why you, you are a victim of marketing. If you want the really good stuff, you just go to the local people. I mean, those, those little stalls that you see alongside the highway sometimes with the people selling mm-hmm. their fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. you're not going to get better than that because it's out of the ground that morning or off the tree that morning. And it hasn't been forced or kept in artificially low conditions, or which traveled. is not really, yes. it's not, yeah, it's not. It's not actually that good for the plant. It doesn't like it. It doesn't respond well. You'll get much better flavours. And it might not look perfect. It might not have zero imperfections on the outside, but it will sure as hell taste great. And, you know, I'm a great subscriber to this. I go to where, where I can. I go to my local and I, I buy the stuff that uh, someone's grown much more locally. And it tastes a million times better. Mm, mm. There you go. Whole signs behind that. Oh, okay. That's why it doesn't last as long at your house than it does at the shop. Is that ethylene safe, uh, Chris? Yeah, um, plants naturally make this. And if you want to ripen things, like tomatoes, for example, if you put them in the fruit bowl alongside your bananas, bananas bananas naturally secrete ethylene as they ripen. And they do it in order to promote their own ripening. The ethylene can spill over onto the other things you put in the fruit bowl and promote the ripening of those too and uh, it's quite safe the concentrations we're dealing with is very very low it's a very potent signal to the plant though it's a sort of wake up and grow signal to the plant which is very very sensitive to its presence and so you only need a tiny amount for the plant to get the message hannah in benoni hello hello my question is how did people know space was a thing before the first rocket was built Hmm. Well, uh, people obviously looked up into the stars and the sky, Hannah, and they had some idea that that there was something special going on because you could look into space, you could see this darkness and then a very bright light, which was the sun, a big object going around the Earth in the form of the moon and then 
distant twinkling objects that we called stars. But even 2,000 years ago, the Greeks knew that not all stars are the same because they could see that some stars seemed to stay where they were relative to each other and other stars appeared to be moving. They called them the planetes for that reason, for wanderers. And that's why we call the planets the planets because when you look in the night sky, you see that there are some points of light that move around. They're the planets that are in our solar system and then the stars are other things a bit like our sun way 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 off into the distance and by watching Mm -hmm. these objects for long periods of time people began to work out where we were relative to them initially they used Mm -hmm. to think that the earth was the center of the universe and the universe went round the earth but pretty quickly people realized come the 1500s copernicus for example uh, wrote a book De, de de revolutionibus in which he described how the earth wasn't the center of the universe and that things weren't going around us we were going around everything else. And mm. we, we've subsequently refined that insight and we now understand uh, how orbits work and that kind of thing. But various measurements that people have been making for the last you know, 100 years or so have, ex- have, have revealed to us the structure of the universe, the fact that the universe is getting bigger. And this was the insights of Hubble, after whom the Hubble Space Telescope is known, mentioned he actually was the first person to, to measure the distance to another galaxy and work out that it was actually racing away from us and therefore how fast the universe is inflating. So we had a lot of these insights. We knew what was up there by making careful measurements and observations before we actually had to go there or went there to see for ourselves. Mm, Thank you so much for the question, Hannah. Uh, Mike B says, I can attest to Dr. Chris saying bananas can ripen other fruit. In Western Australia, they grow bananas and mangoes hundreds of kilometers north and know how to pack them together in road trucks to get to Perth in a nearly ripened state. So there's a response to the issue of ethanol and uh, just ethylene rather and just, you know, hurrying up this ripening process. Let's go to JJ in Mamilodi. Hi, JJ. Hi, hi, my black sisters uh, and Dr. Chris. How hi, are JJ. You? I'm good. good. How good. are you? Yeah, man. Hey, man, please, as uh, next time, please tell the gatekeeper there to take care of us because I'm a black scientist myself. I've been struggling from Robin Island to get hold of him to talk to. Uh, to Dr. Chris, Chris last okay. time we spoke, we uh-huh. spoke on air. Uh, I mentioned the GMT and you indicated how it is calculated with the seven minutes. So my question actually, because you're talking about your voting now, I'm trying to find out because my child or my friend has been asking me that how I stay down. I'm now on the mainland in the capital of South Africa. So I want to find out from you uh, in relation to kilometers and knots. Because I told me the boat you don't measure with, with you measure speed with knots. So I don't know you'll tackle that one. But the most question I wanted to ask with the project producer there is that uh, uh, can beds, because my sister is keeping beds and she's feeding them every time they come with different beds. So I want to know if beds, beds of any sort, pigeons and all that can cause COVID-19. And my last one, because I don't have like sort of... Ah, we'll call you back, JJ, so that you can ask that second question. Hey, Mr. Gatekeeper, please let JJ have access to the naked scientist. Well, I think he he, he wanted to talk about COVID and birds, didn't he? And he was saying, can things like pigeons carry it? People are doing those sorts of experiments because it's really important to answer this question because we need to know where the threat is coming from. And if we've got animal reservoirs of an infectious disease, we need to know what that reservoir is and where it is. Also, Mm -hmm. we don't want to overlook the obvious, which is that people have pets. 
And uh, could your pet be a threat? Could you infect your dog, cat or parakeet with COVID? Could they infect you with it if they catch it from somewhere? People are looking at this. The evidence is that uh, cats and dogs are both susceptible to the infection. They can catch it. Cats appear to be a bit more susceptible than dogs do. They do become a bit symptomatic. Cats appear to become more symptomatic and can pass it on to other cats. Dogs, I don't think there's compelling evidence yet that dogs will pass it on to other dogs. And people are also looking at smaller mammals like ferrets. They also appear to transmit the infection. Birds, no. There's no evidence that birds carry this new human coronavirus. Birds do have their own coronaviruses that infect them, but not this new one. It doesn't appear to infect or cause a problem for birds. Therefore, we don't think birds like pigeons that JJ referred to are a risk as a reservoir for COVID-19. All right. Uh, JJ, your second question. The last one was about aerospace tourism. And I want to know, because three nationals, the Americans, the Arabs, and now the Chinese have blasted into space. The last time we spoke to Dr. Chris, he was saying there's nothing for humanity in outer space. I want to know, is there any colonization that is forthcoming also? Thank you, people. I'm listening to you. Thank you. For Thank you, JJ. Bye-bye. Thank you. We haven't Mm -hmm. colonised anywhere in space yet, but it's certainly on the cards. It's certainly something that people who are entrepreneurs, people who are looking for the next big money-making venture, they're certainly considering this. And the, the whole idea about having hotels in space, hotels in orbit, this sounds like it's a little bit pie in the sky, if you'll excuse the pun, but it's not. And people are talking about doing this as a sort of an orbital holiday. You could blast off, go up, spend some time in orbit, a bit like a sort of temporary stay aboard the International Space Station, and then come back again. At the moment, this is not being done, but people have bought tickets to be among the first when the opportunity is available, but it isn't available Mm -hmm. yet. So don't hold your breath. In the meantime, people are also looking at the prospect of doing uh, manned missions to Mars, for example. Uh, That was uh, sort of suggested by um, the United States. Um, That hasn't come to fruition yet, and we certainly haven't got anything ready to go yet. The big problem is getting people back. We're pretty confident we could get people to Mars, but then when they get there, they've got to survive, they've got to live, they've also got to have survived the journey, and it's a long journey Mm -hmm. in space, nine months or Mm so. Quite a lot of radiation exposure during that nine months, also a lot of microgravity exposure during that nine months, which means you'll have damage to your bones, weakening of muscles, potentially also impacts on your health in other respects, cardiovascular disease and so on, that we're we're still not very well across all this. So there are many, many unanswered questions. And so at this stage, we're still trying to get life on Earth right and uh, solve other problems like pandemics and uh, before we start Mm. considering um, going to other places in space. But uh, I, I certainly think it's on the cards. Do I think it's within the next 10 years? I don't think it's within the next 10 years, but do I think it's within the next two or three decades? I think probably we're going to start seeing a lot more of this within that time frame. Yes. Wow. Here's a question coming in via Twitter. One says, my question for Dr. Chris is, why do commercial airplanes travel uh, the long routes instead of direct shorter distance routes? This comes from Johnny. Hi, Johnny. It looks like they're taking the long route because when you look at the route they're taking, they seem to fly all over the place rather than go directly from what we would think of as A to B. But remember, when you look at a map in a book or in a newspaper or pinned onto the classroom wall, that is what's called a projection. They've basically taken the ball that is the planet with the land smeared over its surface and they've flattened it out and made it into a two-dimensional thing. When you consider it in three dimensions, a sphere, then actually what looks like the most direct route isn't. 
the most direct route might be over the surface of that sphere in a sort of arcing shape. So don't assume that the most direct route is the one that would be right on paper, because it isn't. So many people fall for that one. Uh, Also worth considering is air currents as well. Uh, When an aeroplane is flying, it's obviously encountering air resistance, and Mm -hmm. that air resistance is because of uh, of the height at which it's flying, but also it's encountering uh, wind pushing it sometimes the way it does want to go but other times the way it doesn't want to go and if it is being pushed the way it doesn't want to go it's got to do more work to fly in the right direction if that's the case then it would burn more fuel so sometimes flight paths are also altered in order to take advantage of or to avoid the disadvantage of the wrong sorts of winds in the wrong directions as well so all these things are factored in to minimize the amount of fuel that has to be burned to get the aircraft safely from a to b because that's what's costing the money it's not just the time it's also how much fuel you're burning because that's going to hit the airline's bottom line right um so here's a question about goosebumps samantha says is there any explanation for me getting goosebumps each time there's a fire even from a simple big lighter i've had uh, no bad experience with fire that i'm aware of and interestingly i was reading an article about uh, research that scientists have done about that they finally have an explanation for the reason why we still get goosebumps Yeah, the reason you have goose pimples, if you look at them closely where they occur, you'll see that wherever there's a goose pimple, there is a hair sticking out. And the bump corresponds to the root of the hair. And at the root of the hair is a muscle called a piloerector muscle. Pilus as in hair in Latin, erector, stand up. These are small muscles that pull the hair into an upright position. They are driven by a branch of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system, which is activated by your fight or flight response. Fight or flight. Now, anything that stresses you out will turn on that branch of the nervous system. Now, normally when you get goose pimples, they happen because either you're cold or because you're frightened. If you're cold, the benefit of standing a hair on end is if you're hairy, like a dog or a cat, and you stand your hair on end, you will increase the amount of air that's trapped next to your skin. And air is a very poor conductor of heat, and therefore you will trap more air next to your skin, you will minimise the amount of heat lost from your body, and therefore you warm yourself up, you make yourself stay warmer. If, on the other hand, you are frightened, if you puff your hair up and make your hair stand on end, you look bigger and if you look bigger you're potentially scarier to a potential threat than a smaller animal and (laughs) so therefore you we have evolved because we we have ancestors that uh, were hairier than we are we've hung on to that reflex which makes our hair stand on end when we are cold to trap more air next to our bodies and minimize heat loss or to make ourselves look bigger and angrier and therefore scarier to potential predators so they'll leave us alone in recent works, uh, recent weeks, scientists have also discovered that the conversation that goes on between the nerve and the muscle, the piloerector muscle, also activates stem cells in the root of the hair, and this could make the hair grow better as well. So this could be a way in which, uh, when our ancestors were cold, if they kept on having to activate their piloerector muscles to make their hair stand on end and make themselves warmer, then by mm-hmm. making the hair grow more then this would make their coats thicker and this would be a longer-term adaptation to keep them warmer in winter. And this might be another branch of of how we regulate the growth of hairs to keep us warmer in wintertime compared with in summertime if you're a hairy animal that uh, can't put a coat on. Okay. Um, Eve in Bosmond, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. I want to know how much truth is there in the 
statement made by a Minister of Transport that going into the plane, you are very safe from the coronavirus. And the reason why I'm asking that is that I spoke to my nephew, who is a scientist in America yesterday, and he said to me, that's far from the truth. And his wife, who happens to be a nursing sister in a COVID ward, has said that a lot of their patients coming in are people who have been flying in in and around America. So how, what, what, what would stop the yes. coronavirus in an mm-hmm. airplane? Yes, so he was talking about that HEPA filter, right? You're referring to those statements about that HEPA uh, filter on planes. Okay, Eve, thank you for that question. And there have been different models. We've had contradicting sort of uh, comments around this issue. Is it enough and does it prevent infection? Yeah, you've got to be careful how you interpret the kinds of facts that uh, Eve was quoting there. Because if you take people who've been travelling, for example, you could say, well, I've got all these people, they were travelling, and now they've got COVID, therefore it must be the aeroplane well actually think more broadly if they're traveling they're probably on business they're interacting with lots of people they're in the airport they're talking to lots of people touching lots of surfaces the numbers of opportunities being afforded to them to touch or interact with an infected entity whether that's a person or a surface or something infected air Mm -hmm. to pick up coronavirus is much bigger than someone who has been ensconced in their home, self-isolating, keeping themselves away from everybody else. So therefore, by by definition, if you've got someone who's out and about, they're going to have a higher risk than someone who's not out and about. It isn't necessarily the travel in in, in the aeroplane exclusively mm-hmm. that's doing that. Now, the worry about the, the aeroplane is that you are sitting in very close, confined conditions, often in high-density conditions with other people, and there are concerns about how much air is being circulated within the aeroplane. People have looked at this, though, and they've looked at this not so much for coronavirus but more for flu and other respiratory infections. And whilst it's true that the close proximity between you and another person in a situation like an aircraft will increase your risk, and that is a fact. You can't get away from that. If you're closer to people, you are going to increase your risk, whether you like it or not. Whether or not that you increase the risk if there's one person on the plane, for everyone on the plane, it's a different matter because the air is changed a lot, the air is filtered, and with those uh, sort of parameters operating, the numbers of people who actually spread viruses through an aircraft is quite limited. It's more confined when you do get spread to the people who are sitting around the active case. So the people closest to the infected person do have a higher risk, but uh, it seems to be confined to a couple of rows either side of that person. So Mm. elsewhere on the aircraft, you're at much lower risk. So I think you have to think more broadly than just it's the aeroplane that's doing this. It isn't. It is is all of the above. It is the travelling. It is the interacting with multiple people. It is all of the opportunities you're giving to the virus to to create a transmission chain, not just the where you sit on an aeroplane. Right. Well, Chris, once again, can't get through all the questions. It seems to be a thing with you and I. Thank you so much, though. We'll connect again next Monday. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Asa, very much. Bye, everybody. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.